0: Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Anne Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture.
1: And I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. So Anne, I'm sure you remember that Fairly early on in the podcast when we were starting to talk about guests and we were wondering if we would be able to get enough people to come on our podcast, I had mentioned that, you know, I think my dermatologist would be an amazing guest. And here we are like two years later, and my amazing dermatologist, Dr. Maureen Ahrens, is joining us today. So Maureen has been my dermatologist for over 20 years, and I found her shortly after I moved here. Warren has been seeing her for almost as long, and the practice she was at when we first found her, she... Went to a new practice shortly thereafter. We followed her there, and we followed her again a few years ago when she opened her own practice because the bottom line is we'd both walk over hot coals to see her. That's (laughs) the simplest way to say it. And what we both really, really love about Maureen is that besides being an amazing dermatologist, she is so present when she's with you, which does not happen very often in a doctor's office anymore. And she really, really gets to know you. And so over the years, our medical relationship also became more personal from all the conversations in the exam room because that 20 plus years starts to add up to a lot of hours. Then a few years ago, I got to know her at a much deeper level when she began sending out regular emails about her breast cancer diagnosis and treatment. And the medical updates were actually just a very small part of the writing. Much more, they were these just beautiful reflections on life and love and beauty and transformation and were just incredibly moving. So, We always ask our guests to share a bio that we can put in the show notes, and I want to read the first sentence from the bio she sent us because it just speaks so beautifully to who she is. I have been a daughter and sister for nearly 61 years, physician for 35 years, wife for 33 years, mother for 31 years, and cancer patient for three and a half years. And so on that note, Maureen, welcome to the podcast. We are so, so happy to have you here. And I'm gonna turn it over to you to tell us a little bit about your journey and just some of those points along that journey that have been particularly meaningful. Well, I am both so thrilled and also
2: a bit terrorized to be here.
0: um, (laughs) No terror, all uh, good. (laughs) I,
2: I am used to an either or. I came from an either or orientation. It was the way I was raised and I've become a yes and person in my best moments. So Sherry asked me to do this more than a year ago, not ready. And I really did have logistical obstacles, but really the obstacles like so many other things in my life are really in my own head. And I had to really look at that, become aware of like, what is that about? Because I'm so comfortable one-on-one with people, have never loved public speaking, but can do that around anything that's in my medical expertise. But to actually go public with your own life story is something that, honestly, Sherry, before cancer, like I I say, life BC and AC, before cancer and after cancer, no way. I love you, but I would have just said no. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'd say that's not my bailiwick. That's not in my wheelhouse. And so obviously a huge, I would say, turning point in my life journey was definitely getting a potentially fatal diagnosis. And that does shift. I think it has to shift us because we know mentally that we're mortal. But when you hear that a cancer that's very aggressive is in your lymph nodes, then it becomes a different kind of reality. Your mortality is real. And all of a sudden, you get a phone call from your eldest child saying, I'm coming in on this flight at this time. Right after you get back from the hospital, I will be there. And you find yourself saying, yes, I need you. And those words came out of my mouth. And I literally could not believe immediately after I said those, that they were my words. Where did that come from? That came from a deep place of knowing that I'm not going to do this alone. And I think the whole journey of the emails that Sherry was referring to, that just started out to protect my husband from having to answer calls and texts. You know, it was simply like, okay, you just think you're going in to get a bilateral mastectomy. Click, click, click. All the people I knew would be calling him, which was about 20 people, immediate family, really close friends, will update you as soon as things are good, which I knew they would be. And then, well, hmm, you think you're on one path, and you find out that A led to B led to C. And I had to go through a few months of chemo, and people started reaching out. I had to cancel patients. And it was an interesting thing to just say, wow, you know, I always love to journal, but now I'm going to update people and dovetail the journal writing with the updates. And it really changed me into a person that was more open about my own journeys. I don't think I was ever super closed, but my dad, who was struggling with dementia at the time, both my parents were in lockdown in their assisted living facility in Maryland. He said to me, I read your email, Maureen, and he had such a concerned look on his face. I was up there visiting and I said, oh, okay, dad. And he said, someone will take advantage of you. And I just thought, yes, part of that was his dementia. And that's transgenerational trauma, all that repression and hiding
0: you started this by telling us the story of your oldest child saying, I'm going to be on this plane at this time. And you were shocked to hear the words come out of your mouth. Yes, I need the help and I'm not going to be able to do this alone. And so I'm just wondering, as you think back in, in your history, was that, you know, and the story you were just telling about your dad, is that part of how you were brought up that I got to do it on my own. I have to. So I'm just curious where that kind of Typical response of like, no, I got this came from?
2: Well, I think that's my role in my family. I'm the third born of four, and we all have pretty clear cut roles in family dynamics. And it's become very clear to me that mine evolved into being the helper, the one who was the resourceful one, the one who could provide the answers. I'm the only one that in my whole big extended Irish family, I'm the only one in healthcare. And I think part of it was the way I was born, like just really a born nurturer, and then my role in my family. And I do think that there's a lot of archetype in Jungian psychology about the wounded healer. And I think that's really real. It's again, that yes, and yes, I have all kinds of resources and advice for you and I have an analytical mind, so I can try to help figure things out. And I have all this access to resources that other people well, now with Google, a lot of right. people.
0: Have access, <laughs> that's right. Dr. That's Google.
2: Right? When I got my MD 35 years ago, we would say, we don't know everything, but we know where to look it up and we have access to it. And that's really what that was about. Such an incredible privilege. But to really do your own self care. That is a whole different matter. And I think for me, doing my own self-care is to this day the most challenging part of my life. I'm much more apt to care for people around me to understand their needs and dissociate from my own. And mind you, medical training back in the day really contributed to that. We worked 110-hour weeks. Week in and week out, we had two weeks vacation on someone else's terms, not our own. And so I think it also created that kind of dissociation. But as a mother, I can ask my kids, mom just loves a project. So it's like, let me just take on whatever you've got and give it everything I have, whether I need sleep or not. But I think that the line between codependency And truly having compassion is a blurry one. For me, it has always been.
1: So tagging onto your comment about you were always the helper in your family and you became that in your own nuclear family that you created, busy life, three kids, doctor, involved in all kinds of other things. I'm curious... Was there a point that you were aware that you really neglected yourself, or was it just so deeply embedded in you that you just didn't even think about it?
2: Early on in high school, I remember my dad and mom saying, we're really concerned about you because you're doing too much. You stay up too late. You're in too many activities. You take on too many roles. You have too many jobs. And I just looked at them as a youthful person would say, you know, you're going to rust out before you burn out. So I have no problems. And I went to William and Mary, and that was not the school that my parents wanted to send me to. I was raised in a very Catholic, very, very conservative, loving Catholic home where the faith was really the glue. So going to a secular school was not okay. And so I went out on a limb and went there and really struggled. I felt like such a failure because again, I lived in this binary mindset. Okay. That was what was in my head all the time. You're either good or you're bad. You're losing or you're winning. You get an A or it's you're failing. So was the struggle academic or social or kind of all of the above? It was really spiritual. And I think part of it was feeling so out on a limb. And, you know, those were the days when you had no access to your parents, except for the hall phone. And I would maybe finally get through and my dad would say, I'm not accepting the charges, I'm watching a game. And it wasn't that he didn't care about me, but it was like, you're out on that limb, you're going to do your thing. So I got to a point of deep anxiety that led into a depression. And that informed me in a way that I think totally transformed my life. I, at one point really thought about, I was a cross country runner and I thought about just running into the woods. I got a huge bottle of Tylenol. Oh my gosh, huge thing of water thought I'll just take all this Tylenol
0: and that'll just end the whole thing. Because at that time, you were out there feeling alone. What else was going on for you, though, that got you to that point, do you think?
2: I think part of it was, you know, I was very involved in youth group, and it was a Catholic youth group, but we did have other Christians. I've always felt like a Christian's a Christian. I never felt like Catholics were so much different. So I got involved in, besides running with people, I got involved in the Christian Youth Fellowship. And it was very, very fundamental. And once people who I thought were my friends found out I was Catholic, one Friday night, they actually cornered me in somebody's dorm room and tried to sort of do some sort of exorcism or something of the devil out of me because of the Catholicism. Just very tough when somebody who, I mean, I moved in on my 18th birthday, and i really had never been away from home there was never any summer camps or things like that i mean i'd spent the night at my friends homes but i had never been away from home and to have that sort of cut off my roommate was so conservatively southern baptist that she just raised in a small town in virginia she was brilliant but she didn't even know what the term happy hour was and I was raised in an Irish family in the 1970s and 80s. And so socially, I mean, her whole social life was bowling with the Baptist Student Union on Friday night. Other than that, she studied. I mean, it was amazing. So isolating. And what I realized is that, for instance, with the breast cancer, you know, that was the first time I'd ever had any medical issue to speak of except for Very, very fixable things, injuries to my knee or something like that, completely out of my box to even be on a medication. So I think that when you have an early experience of having such a deep challenge to your being, that kind of isolation is something that will kill you faster than. Cancer, for sure. Obviously, now this is particularly pertinent in our culture because of all of the things that are so isolating, pandemic, and probably a lot of it really is sort of baked in beyond the pandemic, as we're finding out with just the way our society is structured and how much time young people, especially, spend on electronics. It's very easy to think you're alone. And my God, if you're comparing your Internal reality with all its complexities to everyone else's highlights, real that's curated. How isolating is that? And so, honestly, looking back, I, I really view life as a curriculum. I truly do. And I think it's a curriculum, unlike when we go to school, we don't have any choice about the coursework. So, having that depression at age 18, which, by the way, I took care of myself because my parents were like, just, you know, hang in there. I got a ride home at Thanksgiving and I said, I can't go back. I knew I was in a really bad way because I had gone into the woods with that bottle of Tylenol a few weeks before Thanksgiving. And I knew I was in trouble.
0: What had stopped you from actually going through with the Tylenol and the water and everything in the woods? Thinking of my mom,
2: but really breaking my mother's heart like that. I just got off the phone with her. She's 91 years old and I tell her all the time, Mom, just that you're there on the other end of the phone. It just makes me smile. It makes me happy. It's not about what you do or don't do, what you can write or say, or no, it's just about presence. And I think, honestly, my mother, she's just fantastic. She is able to accept things that many. People raised the way she was and of her generation would not accept. And who knows why we do or don't do anything. I always say we're a mystery to ourselves, right? And so, no surprises that people that we love dearly and are very close to have secrets from us because I think we have secrets from ourselves. My parents didn't know what a jam I was in, and I didn't necessarily have words for it, but I got through exams and I did fine. But in my head, I had failed. And so it's not about what was on the paper. It was, I was failing there. So I left. I told my parents, I'm not going back. And my next door neighbor drove me down there. We got two speeding tickets. on <laughs> our way up and back. We cleaned out my room. We played all our tunes. We sang a cappello all the way from Maryland to Virginia and back. And I just said, oh, okay. So the headline in my head is valedictorian drops out. Another really lonely place to be. Right. Scary. Really, really scary.
1: I want to go back for a second because I think it's relevant to going forward. Your comment that you didn't take the Tylenol in the woods and you asked for help by making a phone call and asking to go home. And I'm just curious was that the first time that you had actually asked for help in your life? Probably.
2: No one in my family, except for my sister, knows about the fact that I was suicidal. I did go to a therapist. I saw the first therapist. And I have to say, she was wonderful. She was a psychologist. And it was so great she didn't put me on medication because I didn't I didn't need medication. I needed to get the hell out of William & Mary. <laughs>
0: yeah. It wasn't your place.
2: Right. And I needed to find out that it was okay to fail. So the being out of school only lasted for a couple of weeks. And I went, oh, God, I have to study something. Like all my friends were in college. I can't just go to concerts and work in restaurants. I'd been doing that for, you know, years in high school. So I enrolled in the community college and it was actually such a liberation. That semester at the community college was incredibly liberating for me because, Maybe because we didn't have social media. My immediate friends were just so glad that I wasn't sad and that I was going to be okay. And those are still five of the finest women. I was, We were just in Delaware for a wedding with all of them and their husbands last weekend, as a matter of fact. And, you know, we were truly friends. Like, how blessed am I that I still can say that those were five of the finest people I've ever met in my life and had each other's back. It was like there was no joy in finding out that somebody was not doing well or struggling and we really celebrated each other. And so just like all the other things that came after, yeah, the hardest, scariest moments ended up being things that broke me open. So then, when I did enroll at Loyola, which is where my dad wanted me to go in the first place, it was his alma mater, Catholic, because P.S. women were going to college to become educated mothers and marry a Catholic man, raise (laughs) Catholic children. How'd
0: that work out for you?
2: (laughs) I really do have to tell this quick vignette to to sort of give the the social context for what 1983. Would be like for a woman who wanted to get recommended at Loyola College in Maryland. You had every person had to go through a multidisciplinary board, all white men over the age of 55 from different disciplines. So I go in there wearing my pink linen suit that I made myself with the matching um, jewelry and the blouse I made myself, my grandmother who taught me how to sew and was an amazing woman herself. She bought me the dove gray pumps that went with the blouse. <laughs> too. And I sit down and these guys start asking me X, Y, and Z about, you know, myself, my academics, why I dropped out of William & Mary, et cetera, et cetera. And then comes the question, Maureen, what are you going to do about a husband and family? Oh my God. <laughs> I'm 20 years old, right? So I said, hmm, would any of you marry a quarter of a million dollar debt? <laughs> <laughs> they,
0: you they went to a- the next
2: question. <laughs> I and guess what? That. They recommended me so highly that I got into University of Maryland two weeks later without an interview. <laughs> That's <laughs>
1: amazing. They wanted to protect all those other white men from being assaulted <laughs> with your questions. <laughs>
2: There's no better way to answer a difficult question than with another question. <laughs> <Like, laughs> we like to know that. Anyway, so I did go to um, University of Maryland Medical School, and my father just couldn't support that. you mean was
0: financially or?
2: Just anyway? Emotionally? Okay. Yeah. So I had bought a car from my older brother in college, so I could work a job up at the hospital in the county every Sunday. I got up at five and went in and worked an eight-hour shift. It was an amazing opportunity. This chemistry professor called and put a word in for me. Just He knew that I always was looking for a way to make money and help out with tuition and things. And so I had been working that job, but I needed a car to get there. So I bought my brother's junker after he graduated. And my dad decided when he heard I was going to go... To med school, that he was going to take the car. So that was sort of a pivotal moment where, again, uh, umbilical cord was cut. And so, because I didn't have a car, I had to live right down in West Baltimore next to the hospital. It was so bad. And we lived right across from a packaged goods store. So we were robbed regularly, and my car was stolen twice. My husband's car was stolen twice, but I lived with. Two men, which appalled my parents even further. One guy that had gone to college with me, and another guy who we found on a board. And he was also in medical school. So I felt at least like, you know, I had men to walk with to and from school. And it was a time where my eyes were really open because not only did I have to work in the clinics with the inner city population, but they were my neighbors too. Sherry might have remembered me saying something about what I learned. I was so sheltered. My parents worked their behinds off to send us to school, and they sent us all the way through Catholic school for kids and Catholic college with no debt. And we were so sheltered. We thought we had hardship because we had to work two jobs in the summer to make our payments.
1: Well, I will just jump in and say, I vividly remember you saying it completely opened your eyes to the world and you were never the same person again.
2: No. I mean, there was a little girl who was chained like a dog to the front porch stoop that I passed often on my way to school in the morning. And a family of kids that would come home with me a lot. And the guys that I lived with were very uncomfortable because one of them was the oldest one was 10, and he carried a knife. He told me he carried the knife so he would not have to go to school because they would suspend him every time he showed it. So they were never going to threaten me. And my sister, who's five years older than me, worked in the city and wanted to fill stockings for this family. They had never seen a Christmas tree except for my little Charlie Brown tree. So they came in every day of December to see that tree lit up. It was just really sweet. And when I took those stockings over and saw the way those children lived... I knew that they didn't have parents that were present, but the only thing in their pantry was cigarettes and toilet paper because their father sold those out of the house and a mattress on the floor for three kids. And I gave them the stockings and I came home and I just bawled my head off and called my sister and said, This is just the most overwhelming reality. She was more aware of it because she had taught in the city schools and worked in nonprofits that were hands-on in the city, but I was very, very unaware. Awareness, I think that was the reality, even with, we don't want to get too much into politics, but my dad was always a staunch pro-life person and worked for the Maryland Right to Life. And, you know, we were very much steeped in Catholic theology and to work then when we got into the clinics in the third and fourth year to work in obgyn in the teenage pregnancy and heroin addiction capital of the world at the time you realize that there's no black and white it's all shades of gray when you've got kids that are living on lead paint and have anemia and brain damage and 14 year olds who the first baby that that I delivered as a third year medical student was to a 13 year old girl And I said, you have a boy. I mean, it was like the most intense experience to deliver a child into your hands. And I put him on her chest and said, you have a boy. And she said, get it out of my effing face. And I just grabbed that baby. We did what we had to do with the cord and everything. And I just remember I ran into the ladies room and just sobbed. I just wanted to take that baby out onto Lombard Street and run like faster than I've ever run in my life. That was what was inside of me at that moment. And that's the privilege of being a physician is that you're on the inside of a lot of things. And when people are making decisions who have never walked into a clinic, who have never had the responsibility of telling people what their options are, that's problematic.
0: And by that, do you mean sort of politicians and policymakers? Is that what you're referencing? Yeah,
2: Yeah. absolutely.
0: How did those experiences in West Baltimore inform you as a doctor? I think I lost
2: a lot of my prejudgment. I think I learned to listen inside the white coat, and it's hard to separate out the place from the process. Could I have learned... Everything I learned in a suburban program, I don't know. I kind of doubt it because I saw a woman, I took care of a woman who was my age, who they thought was pregnant and brought into the OB department. And when they put the ultrasound on her belly, it was all ascites. So she had end-stage liver disease. She was 25 years old and had already drank herself into end-stage liver disease. And unlike so many people we took care of, she died on my watch. I saw her all the way through because it only took a month. And, you know, when you see someone in that state at such a young age who you talk to every day, three times a day, and check in on, those things don't ever leave you. You know, so I've been able to say to my kids, trust me, just because some drug is legal. It's very, very arbitrary what's legal, right? And, you know, there but for the grace of God can go any of us because we all have a breaking point.
1: So you had very early on in our conversation made the comment that you were born a nurturer. And there's very much this through line of how some of the experiences you have had have really deepened that for you. I mean, I'm listening to you talk and you and I have talked about it before of your experiences in medical school and how for you, it had the impact of making you even more compassionate and more aware. And I'm really curious if we just fast forward now to the last five years where you have had this huge epiphany about the need to nurture yourself and the need to say yes to help and allow other people to help you. It just feels like there's been this thread that all of these experiences you have had have somehow kind of coalesced this becoming even more compassionate and at the same time making room in yourself for self-compassion. It just feels like there's very much this through line.
2: I think I'm finding more of the yes and approach. Like, yes, I care about my children, my patients, my practice, my husband, my community. I care about social justice. And I also have to put limits on how much of that I can incorporate in my daily life. So, you know, I spent Mother's Day weekend passing a kidney stone. There's such a mind-body connection, right? So having a stone is like one of my body's ways of saying, you know what? Yeah, you did all these fun things. You traveled, you saw both 91-year-old and 90-year-old mother and mother-in-law We've been doing all these great, wonderful things, but I forgot. I have to take care of myself. I have to hydrate more, which is like a full time job after three huge babies. And it's possible. So I'm just doing it. I mean, I have my water right here because (laughs) I have to have it with me all the time. And I'm just going to recommit, right? So progress is not linear. We know that. Nothing in nature, including our bodies, is linear. And so I keep undulating around, okay, overall, I'm much more connected to myself. I have to be. But on the other hand, sure, it's my nature. I get so involved. Like, if you're coming to my house, I'm finding out what you love to eat. What do you love to do? And I'm going to move heaven and earth to do that. But at least now I'll say, mm-hmm. Maybe we need to buy that part of that meal and I need to go to bed by 11 and not stay up until one, doing it just the way I envision, you know, which is from scratch, making it as good as it can be and special.
0: So was it your diagnosis that really brought you more to this yes and and focus on self-care?
2: Absolutely, because I thought it was going to be pretty simple. I always do well with surgery. It's like, great, no problem. I'll heal up. And then, well, now you have to, it's in the nodes, so you have to get chemotherapy. And then it's like, well, you know, the oncotype was so high. It's such an aggressive tumor. You're going to be on something for 10 years. And who knows after that? Because it's a bad actress that can come back in the bones even 20 years later. So you start to go down this path where it's like, well, hmm. In those moments, I would say I had so much clarity in the months of the the chemotherapy, particularly because I worked a little bit, but really because I was an owner in my practice, I worked just enough to feel like I was still connected to the patients. And I said, I don't care if I am losing tons of money. It was just money. It did not matter. I had the great fortune of having really wonderful physicians and my oncologist is still practicing. Everyone else is retired.
0: (laughs) You broke them. Maureen, it, it strikes me that, I mean, you talked about the intergenerational trauma of your father and you talked about you embodying the wounded healer, as horrific as all cancers are, but as this cancer sounds like, it almost feels like a gift to heal some of that intergenerational trauma. And that's what I'm saying. You know, when I saw my dad's face, like of real
2: concern, like somebody's going to take advantage of you, I thought, oh my gosh, it's so much the opposite. No, I am letting people in in a way that is unbelievable. So one of my dear friends is a rabbi and after years of raising Jewish kids, so we were definitely star-crossed lovers, Alan was raised in modern orthodoxy. and. My family was extremely Catholic. And so getting married the way we did in a hotel with a rabbi and a priest, it was just, oh my gosh. I mean, I could write a few seasons sitcom on that whole thing. It does
0: sound like the beginning of a joke a little bit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like two of us walked into a hotel with a rabbi and a priest. Frankly, <laughs> if it weren't
2: that we were breaking our parents' hearts for real, really would have been hilarious. Yes. But we split the difference. And because Judaism is a matriarchal lineage, I did not convert. We raised three kids in Judaism. And because of my background, frankly, I wouldn't have gone to medical school if I thought I was going to have a family, was going to get married, have a family. Because again, it was this either or thing. And so, okay, you're on your own. You do this on your own. And And then all of a sudden, I meet this guy who just was born to be a dad. You talk about a born nurturer and just like the best friend I've ever had. And there was no turning back from that. We tried for about three hours one time and it was terrible. (laughs) So.
0: We're trying like, to be you know, broken up, do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> we broke
2: up for three hours. And we talked like five times during those three hours. So That's
0: amazing.
2: <laughs> um, oh my god! I did drive home to my mother, though, during the three hours.
1: I, okay. <laughs> well, there, well, there you go. Yeah. Well, well, I do have a question for you on the you raised three kids that were Jewish. You did not convert. And you had shared with me, because I, for some reason, thought you had converted a long time ago. Right. You and everybody else. And so I was surprised when we were chatting and you told me you had just converted right around the time of your cancer diagnosis. And I'm really curious about the connection between your cancer diagnosis and converting to Judaism.
2: I do think it was integrated in that because, you know, nothing's random, really. I mean, there is some randomness, but it's not entirely random. So when this diagnosis happened, I knew that I was going to need both of the breasts taken off for a variety of reasons, but mostly intuitively I knew that. And the doctors agreed with me. So mikvah, which is the ritual bath that people use to convert and Orthodox women use to become clean every month after they menstruate. And it's a very complicated, but baptism is based on the Jewish ritual of mikveh. And I'm so fortunate that in the congregation where we are, which is Beth Meyer, they have a modern, beautiful mikvah in the basement of our sanctuary. So my children had to all go because the girls were bought mitzvah in a reform congregation. So they accepted interfaith couples. But in a conservative congregation, since i was not converted when will our youngest went to become bar mitzvah the girls wanted to come up onto the bima which is the, like the the altar and do blessings and so they had to go to the mikveh which was a whole interesting thing so will had to be converted in the mikveh before he became bar mitzvah so even though these kids had been raised entirely in judaism they all had to go. And so Alan, my husband, who was born Jewish, certainly had never gone. And it just occurred to me, I was starting to say, one of my friends who is a rabbi here, who really is was the impetus for this wonderful mikvah, she was doing a meditation service on Friday night. I had taken several classes from Jenny, but just adore her. And I said, you know, Jenny, it's time for me to go to the mikvah. And she said, oh yeah, it's beyond time. <laughs> <laughs> they say, you know, traditional Jews say you have to ask three times to become Jewish. Well, I had given birth to three Jews. So I think
1: it, <laughs> it was time I that counted.
2: <laughs> yeah. I went to the mikvah with four friends witnessing and women, and it was just so powerful. I went Because I wanted that experience of before my body was so changed to be fully immersed. And then I knew that once I felt I was at a point in my healing that I felt somewhat whole again, that I would go again. And so really just last year, I went again and my husband went. As well. And so this time it was personal because I didn't need to be converted. And because we're so close, we went through so much together. It was so powerful to see him immerse and to witness each other's immersion. So powerful. And I think because we're embodied, when you sent the questions like, What grounds you? Well, I think as spiritual beings that are in a body, we love and need ritual, whether it's something that's codified or not, is immaterial. The ritual of sitting down to dinner together, the ritual of turning out the light and saying good night to each other or kissing each other good night, the ritual of hugging your kids before they leave for school. These are so important. And when we were in that horrible isolation in the early pandemic, The kind of loss that we experienced was every bit as life-threatening from the isolation as the actual virus. And I know that in a way that I think I know because of the work I do, because I can't do it remotely. We tried on a dime's notice. I was sitting in this very chair trying to, I was watching all my elderly patients ceiling fans turn and they're trying to describe their rash. And I'm like, do you know where your camera is? (laughs) (laughs) made Some very funny videos about, but it would, I would literally toss and turn because it's not just about being able to touch and see, it's about the energy that we bring to each other. Right. And that is so deep. And and when I found out that I had this very high type, I called my rabbi and I mistakenly FaceTimed her. And so she's like, Oh, how are you? I tell her, she said the most beautiful thing, Maureen, we are your scaffolding. And it was such a powerful metaphor because when you are going through trauma of any sort, to have a scaffolding, like a building that's under, under renovation, is such a fortress, such a protection. It doesn't shield you from the elements, but you know you're not going to crumble. And I am just so fortunate because there was no way that I wasn't going to do well. There was just no way. But I am so aware of the people who do not have the resources financial, emotional, social. There's such grave health disparities in our country. And I don't know what to do with all of that new awareness, but I do try to support organizations that I've only found out about since that time that reach out to particularly women with breast cancer that don't have proper resources. But it's just stunning to me now that I see people every week in my office that I think, oh, you know, if they had a different situation, they would have a different outcome, whether it's their home life or their work life or both. But there are so many disparities. And I think you don't have to be in the inner city to witness those. I think you just have to open up your eyes and your heart.
0: That's right. I mean, and I think that you're talking now about some financial disparities. You're talking about access to health disparities, but there's also sort of the mental health aspect of the loneliness that we talked about. And I'm I'm just curious Maureen, if you think about that lonely girl who was off at college and if you could go back and whisper any words of wisdom in her ear, what would you say to her?
2: Being alone in something is only an illusion. It is only an illusion. It is not real. We are all so interconnected. I still think I have a lot I could learn from that girl, too, because I think along the way, we build all kinds of attachments, really, and ways to protect ourselves. And I was so idealistic and so tough on myself. I didn't know how to handle everything that was coming in because I am such a sensitive soul. And I think nothing is forever. That's the other thing I would tell her. We know that in our bones as women who have been through some life, but how can a young person know that?
0: I love what your rabbi said to you about the scaffolding. And I think part of what your rabbi was saying is we always have some scaffolding, but I think maybe a lot of us don't recognize it in the moment when we need it the most. And that's part of the message that I'm hearing that you would,
2: you would share. And that's why her being so present to know how to give me the metaphor that would really help me to accept what was happening, you know, because the flip side of the things that we reject and then we project or the things that we resist and they persist. Once you are aware of something and accept it, that's when the transformation starts. And I will be forever indebted to her for so many things. But, you know, I am a words girl. So part of what grounds me is reading, especially poetry. I love poetry. So I love the Psalms. I was actually just reading a Psalm to my mom. And one of the lines was, let the rivers clap their hands. I mean, how awesome is that? I'm like, mom,
1: the rivers clap their hands. Like it just blows you away, right? What a absolutely beautiful line to wrap up the podcast on. And Maureen, thank you so, so, so much for being with us. This has just been such an absolute delight. And I'm just really happy we finally made it happen. So much fun. Keep doing your great work. Oh, thank you, Maureen. Thank you. And that wraps up our episode for today. We really hope you enjoyed it and would love if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes, or post it to your own social media. You can find info and previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. And we're really
0: excited about a new concept that we're trying out, kind of like a book club for podcast episodes. We're calling them pod squads. The idea is to give you the opportunity to bring together a few friends and talk about some of the ideas and concepts that we talk about in each episode. And depending on timing, one of us might be able to join you. If you are interested in learning more, go on over to flowingeastandwest.com to join the mailing list. Until then, please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life.